to the A to Z Animal Podcast. I'm your host, Michaela Baratka, and of course, any little bird noises you may hear is my unofficial co-host, Pickle, my canary wing parakeet. She's very cute, so I recommend checking her out on Instagram, at Pickle the Canary Wing. It's been a minute, but I am so happy to be back. The past few weeks have been utterly exhausting to the point that I was not even sure I would have the energy to research and write this week's episode, but here we are. Also, you may notice a better quality of audio. Your girl finally got around to buying an actual microphone instead of just talking into her phone. Before we dive in, remember you can find all my sources linked in the show notes and transcript, which are available on our website, theatoceanimalpodcast.com, under the episodes tab. Resources to help this week's animal will also be linked there. Side note, this week I have many wiki articles linked, and while Wikipedia is not the most reliable source, I found it helpful while I was fact-checking myself. I often found that I had facts in my head about this week's topic, but needed to make sure I wasn't telling you lies, so I just did a quick Google search. Don't worry, all the important new information I learned was from a more reputable source. Additionally, any ecology terminology that may be used often most likely can be found on our glossary page. I will be defining words that we may not encounter as often in an individual episode. If you have any feedback or recommendations for a letter, feel free to contact me at Mickey Barra or at A to Z Animal Pod on Twitter and Instagram. There's also a form that you can fill out for animal suggestions on our website. Even if we've done that letter, still feel free to submit, so hopefully we'll get the chance to circle back around. We started with A for I.I., our weird little lemur friend, followed by B for Benturong, the bear cat, and C for Caracal, or the desert lynx. After that, we discussed the long-overlooked dole, or Asiatic wild dog, and critically endangered European mink. Today, we talk about an animal that is so wonderfully silly-looking, the Foss gharial. Now, yes... I could have very well waited until next week to talk about the gharial, as the name Foss gharial does imply that there is a quote-unquote true gharial, and well, there is. However, I was so excited to finally move out of the realm of mammals that I decided that I needed to talk about this species first. And not to mention I selected my G animal before I found the one for letter F. Typically, we start with explaining the scientific name, but seeing as we're on the topic, let us first discuss its common name. Now, if you're like me, you're probably listening to this and having no idea what a gharial even is or what they're related to. Well, gharials are part of the crocodilia order, meaning they're cousins to the crocodile, alligator, and caiman. Now, I pride myself on having a decent amount of knowledge on most classifications of animals, even if it is the bare minimum. And I truly believed, up until a month ago, there were no other living types of crocodilians than the three I just mentioned. But alas, there is one other family of large semi-aquatic reptiles to mention. The Gaviliidae family, or the Garioles. Now, it's not like I didn't just know about several different very distinct-looking crocodilians. This family only has two extant members. I bet you can guess right now what those members are. Yes, the only two living members of the Gaviliidae family are the Garial and the False Garial. If these two species are the only two remaining members of the family, why not have them be named after their locations or characteristics? After all, both Nile crocodiles and saltwater crocodiles are still crocodiles. Well, it's a tad different for the Garials. See, the two species of crocs that I just mentioned belong to the same genus, despite living far apart. For our gharial friends, they're in two separate subfamilies. As a result, the two species are more distantly related. So while yes, compared to the false gharial's relationship to the Nile crocodile, the true gharial is more closely related. If you compare the relationship between the gharial species and the crocodile species, then they're like second cousins twice removed. 
Well, not actually. I don't understand how the removal of cousins works, so that analogy is probably scientifically incorrect. But you get the idea. They aren't as closely related as their names might indicate. Okay, so what makes a gharial true or false? For starters, they're not identical species. While they do share many characteristics, such as their slender snouts, don't worry, we will discuss this later on, true gharials tend to be larger and have longer snouts than their false cousins. However, in my opinion, the easiest way to tell them apart is geography. True gharials are found in India and the neighboring countries, while false gharials are native to Malaysia and Indonesia. Now, it's probably also a good time to mention that it seems nowadays these reptiles have been rebranded as Malayan gharials. I actually tend to use geography when it comes to identifying most crocodilians, as I tend to forget what characteristics are different between alligators and crocs. The general rule of thumb is, if it's in America, it's a gator, and anywhere else is a croc. Side note, caiman tend to be really small and easily distinguished by their size, but they also fit into the alligator family, and share many of those distinguishing characteristics, most notably the placement of their eyes. Moral of the story is, despite my desire to be adopted into the Irwin family, I fear I lack the knowledge of croc identification that would be required of me. I have let them down. Also, while we're on the subject, what makes a crocodilian a crocodilian? Well, I mean, crocodilians in general are large, predatory, semi-aquatic reptiles. But did you know that they're most closely related to birds? This is because they're the only two remaining groups of archaeosaurs, which is the group non-avian dinosaurs and pterosaurs also belong to. Reptiles like snakes and lizards fall outside this group. General characteristics of these animals also include long, flattened snouts with eyes, ears, and nostrils on the top of the head, laterally compressed tails, great swimming ability, as well as the ability to walk on land, thick skin with non-overlapping scales, peg-like teeth, and a powerful bite. Okay, cool, so we know what a crocodilian is and what makes a gharial true or false. Let's finally dive into our letter F, the false gharial. Before I forget, I will be linking some gharial conservation efforts on our website as well, as the gharial is critically endangered while the false gharial is vulnerable. And because I'm not going to cover such similar species back to back, I feel it's only right to provide resources on both types of gharial. Okay, now really on to the episode. The scientific name for this gharial is Tomostoma schlegli. Tomostoma comes from the ancient Greek words tomos and stoma. Tomos translates to sharp, and stoma means mouth, so tomostoma means sharp mouth. Considering these are crocodilians with large teeth and those teeth do stick out of its mouth, this name makes total sense. This genus may also contain several extinct species, but more recent studies have regrouped the extinct species as there is evidence the group is paraphyletic. By the way, a paraphyletic group refers to species descended from a common ancestor, but does not include all the descendants. It's kind of hard to explain without going into detail on other groupings like monophyletic and polyphyletic, so I will include a handy comparison cladogram on this episode's page on our website. Schlegel means of Schlegel, who is the Dutch zoologist who is credited with its discovery. And the false gharial is not the only species with this scientific species name. While looking for the etymology of the name, I discovered the eyelash viper also has the species name Schlegli. I'm sure other species do as well, but the viper was the first few hits when I typed it into Google. Okay, so I'm realizing that maybe I should elaborate more onto what this animal looks like. I'm assuming most of you are just picturing a gator or a croc, and while the body of a false gharial is similar, it's the snout that differs. The snout is long and narrow, and has roughly 76 to 84 teeth. 
in my opinion, it kind of looks like if you just squeezed a croc snout really, really hard and then it narrowed out. Other than that, the eyes and nostrils are on the top of the body, just like gators and crocs. On average, they grow four to five meters in length or about 13 to 16 feet long. That doesn't mean they can't grow bigger. Not to mention, they weigh 93 to 210 kilograms, or about 205 to 463 pounds. And males are typically larger than females. For reference, gators are typically around 14 feet and the crocs are around 17 feet. So this species falls about the same length as their cousins. Although, they are much smaller when weight is considered. Alligators may weigh around 500 to 1,000 pounds, while crocs often weigh 800 to over 1,000 pounds. Color-wise, these beasts are chocolatey brown and have black banding throughout their body and tail, much lighter than the gators and roughly the same color as some species of crocs. However, much like more well-known crocodilians, their underbelly is a light cream color. I mean, why invest energy into camouflaging a part of your body your prey will hardly see? Okay, so do we have a good picture in our heads? Great. I mean, I really don't know how else to elaborate it. I feel like everyone has a generic crocodilian image to reference. So where are we going to find these in the wild? Well, I kind of hinted it already with their comparison with the true gharial, but these guys are in Indonesia and Malaysia. Within Indonesia, they are in Kalimantan, eastern Sumatra, western Java, and western Borneo, as well as potentially in Sulawesi. Additionally, they are found in both the Peninsula region and Sarawak in Malaysia. Oh, and they can also be found in Brunei, which makes sense because the nation is in the same island as parts of Malaysia and Indonesia, and animals don't follow human geographical borders. Potentially, you may find some in Vietnam, but those reports are unconfirmed. And back in the 1970s, you may have been able to spot the false gharial in southern Thailand, but they're now thought to be extirpated from the region. But regardless of what Southeast Asian country you may find them in, their populations are relatively isolated and occur in low densities. My best guess, as a student of ecology and evolution, is that this isolation and low densities have to do with the gradual drifting of the islands within the area. But I don't know a ton about island geography in the area or how they were formed, so like I said, best guess. But some regions do have high density populations, including Sumatra. However, the largest population can be found in Tanjung Puting National Park in Kalimantan. Okay, but these are just regions, not habitats. So where in these locations may you spot these ancient animals? Well, actually quite a few habitats are home to them, including peat swamps, blackwater streams and rivers, lowland freshwater swamp forests, flooded forests, and on the fringes of rainforests near slow rivers. They really love peat swampy regions and low elevations with slow moving, muddy, acidic water. Potentially, you may also be able to find them in secondary forests that have defined channels and river banks with a higher pH and elevation. Remember, higher pH means more basic or less acidic. These secondary forests may also lack peat mounds. Secondary forests refer to the age of the forest after disturbance. Primary growth forests are young and are composed of early successional species, or those that grow early in a disturbed area. Secondary, or second growth forests, have species that take longer to develop and grow. Once again, this is a very watered down explanation, as there are so many papers on forests, especially in tropical regions. If you want some great papers to read on this topic, reach out to me on social media at A to the Animal Pod on Twitter and Instagram, and I'd be happy to give you some. I literally have a textbook full of them, as I took a course on tropical biology last fall. 
Other than their murky waters, much like other members of the crocodilian group, they do require some terrestrial areas for nesting and basking. And I know, I often give home ranges for the species we talk about, but home ranges have yet to be observed in the wild. Most likely this is due to the lack of research, as I know Australia's zoo is just now working on studying saltwater crocodile range and habitat use. However, in captivity, multiple males have been successfully housed together without any apparent aggression, so it is possible that individuals don't mind sharing their territory. It would be interesting not only to study their use of territory and home range, but also their mating behaviors. As you'll hear in a little bit, scientists really don't know anything about their wild mating system. Now, I'm not gonna lie. I really struggled to find information on their behavior. Like, literally only one of the sources I found had any information on their behavior outside of reproduction and general life history information. But that doesn't matter, because let's be real. An animal that cannot thermoregulate for themselves, and one of that size, they aren't going to do much. They really just hang out in the water, or on occasion, basking. Like other crocodilians, they submerge themselves in shallow waters, or even mud holes, with just their eyes and nostrils above the water. On average, they can fully submerge underwater for 10 to 15 minutes, but are capable of staying underwater for two hours. In the water, they are either mostly looking for food or just chilling out, regulating their metabolism. But they aren't fully aquatic. As I mentioned, they will come out onto the banks to bask, which helps them thermoregulate. There is also potentially evidence that gharials occupy burrows, but this is not a confirmed behavior. It should be no surprise that the false gharial is a carnivore, but unlike other carnivores we have discussed on this show, they're opportunistic carnivores. This means they eat meat whenever the opportunity presents itself. I couldn't find an exact statistic for how long the animals may go without food. I do remember hearing as a kid that alligators and crocodiles can go weeks without eating. And upon Googling, apparently gators can go two to three years. Years. That is insane. And it seems to be true for crocs as well. I didn't do a deep dive into those sources to see if they are credible, but it seems about right. I mean, other members of the reptile family don't eat every day because they have the slow metabolism, so it makes sense that these guys can go long periods without eating. The extended periods between feeds may also plan to the fact that they have essentially no behavior besides just sitting there. Okay, so they hardly eat. But what do they eat when they actually go for a meal? Well, pretty much anything they can get their hands on. Or, well, the snout on. Often they will go for macaque monkeys when they venture close to the water, as well as mouse deer, otters, fish, wild pigs, dogs, birds, turtles, snakes, monitor lizards, and both aquatic and terrestrial invertebrates. Pretty much any animal that happens to be nearby when they decide they're hungry. On the opposite end of the spectrum, false gharials are not really a species that becomes prey. Of course, eggs and hatchlings may be swooped up by larger reptiles such as monitor lizards and wild pigs. Humans in the area may also enjoy their eggs. I also read that in captivity, termites and ants have killed hatchlings before they were able to emerge from the nest. Which is kind of nuts. But really, once they start to grow, they're too large for any predator to even think about hunting them. Not to mention thick scales most likely would make them difficult to take down. Also, I imagine the predator would end up walking away with some nasty injuries from the gharial's teeth. So, while we're on the topic of hatchlings, let's learn some more about the false gharial reproduction. The species reaches reproductive maturity at about 20 years old for both males and females. And yes, this is much older than other animals we have talked about, but 
these animals also live to be much older. Rather than living 10 to 20 years in the wild, false gharials may live between 60 and 80 years. And according to Tier Park in Berlin, on average, they live to 70. There is evidence that they may not live as long in captivity. Now, I mentioned a little bit ago that we really don't know what sort of courtship rituals occur in the wild when it comes time to mate. We know from captive breeding programs that males will approach females in the water and swim around them when it's time to mate. Oh, and by the way, mating season and nesting is believed to occur during the rainy seasons in both captivity and in the wild. This occurs twice in the year between November and February, and between April and June. Because of this, Fosgarials often reproduce twice a year. Other than the males circling the females, it has been documented that both individuals will hit each other with their tails, where, in other cases, copulation immediately follows. I won't go into details of how this occurs, because I try to be as family-friendly as possible, but you can definitely look it up if you're curious. Breeding will continue to happen once a day for up to a week, and it has been reported to be accompanied by a strange odor. Don't know what kind of odor, but I really don't have the desire to look it up. I read that a captive breeding program in Malaysia was able to house three males with one female, and when it came time to mate, the female selected the largest male, and remained close to him during the courting period. On the other hand, if two females were kept in the same enclosure with males, no mating took place. Scientists at this captive breeding program believe that the close proximity of females suppressed the other's breeding. But again, there's still a lot to know about how they mate in the wild, so this could just be a fluke. After the whole courtship ritual is over and the female is successfully pregnant, it's time to lay some eggs. These animals are mound nesting animals. These mounds are typically made in the shade of a tree near the water and are often made using sand and vegetation nearby, including peat, twigs, tree seeds, and dried leaves. Females may begin construction on the nests a month or more after an encounter with the father. A week or two later, she lays a clutch with 20 to 60 eggs. It is important she lays so many because, as I mentioned before, these little guys are the most susceptible to predation that they will ever be in their lifetime. In order to ensure that some of her offspring survive to maturity, she must produce extra. And the eggs they're laying? Not small. The largest Fosgarial egg on record was 9.5 centimeters long and 6.2 centimeters wide. Oh, and the legs may weigh up to 155 grams each. For reference, an average jumbo egg in the US is 70 grams. Once the eggs are laid, even more vegetation is added to the top of the nest to protect the babies. In total, mounds may be 45 to 60 centimeters high and 90 to 110 centimeters in diameter. This is about a foot and a half to two feet tall and around three to three and a half feet wide. Because of the sheer size of these mounds, it makes sense that captive breeding programs have found evidence that abundant vegetation increases the chance of breeding. After 90 to 100 days, hatchlings will begin to emerge from their shells. As for parental investment, males do nothing after fertilization of the eggs. Females may be found sitting on top of the mound or even defending them, but more often than not, they flee if the nest is approached. There is some evidence that females may help to dig out nests before or during hatching, most likely to help the babies climb out. But they have not been observed assisting hatchlings into the water like other crocodilian species. After this, the babies are on their own. And that's pretty much the extent of information I could find on these animals. So I guess let's move on to some fun facts. 
Also, side note real quick, we really don't know how these guys communicate. So if you're interested in animal communication and looking for a study species, here you go. Like many reptiles, the sex of an individual is determined by the incubation temperature. In fact, temperature is known to fluctuate in the nest depending on the environment and rainfall. This is called temperature-dependent sex determination. Instead of just the sex chromosomes determining if an individual is a male or female, the temperature at which the egg is incubated may result in a different sex. For example, an individual who is male by sex chromosomes may hatch out as a female because of the temperature they were incubated at. Temperature-dependent sex determination, or TSD, is a really fascinating area of study, and I highly recommend you look into it. It is present in many reptiles and even some species of birds. In crocodilians, warmer temperatures often produce males, while cooler temps result in more females. Another cool fact, and this applies to many species of crocodilians, their ability to submerge themselves in water for extended periods of time stems from their ability to slow down their metabolism. In doing so, they don't need as much oxygen and can go longer periods of time underwater. This also plays into why they can go so long without eating. Out of all the crocodilians living and dead, the false gharial has the longest skull. The largest on record is in the British Museum and measures 84 centimeters long. Now, this was shocking to me because at the start of the episode I said true gharials typically have longer snouts. But I guess the overall skull is a different story. But don't worry, if you're not in the UK, you can still see a false gharial skull. The Munich Museum has one measuring 81.5 centimeters, and the American Museum of Natural History in New York City has one that is 76.5 centimeters. Unfortunately, those are all the fun facts I've got, but again, it's because people seem to not be studying these guys. Before we move on to conservation, I said at the start of this episode I would also include some resources for the true gharial. The true gharial is critically endangered while the false gharial is vulnerable, according to the IUCN Red List. Now, both of these species really need our help as they're disappearing from their ecosystems. As apex predators, they play vital roles in their communities with top-down control. Trust me, ecosystems that lose apex predators easily collapse. Look at what happened when the walls were removed from Yellowstone. For false gharials, it seems like one of the major threats is the isolation the individual populations face. This can cause things like genetic bottleneck, which may lead to some detrimental genetic mutations. Humans destroying the planet also aren't helping. While not solely dependent on trees, as we destroy rainforests and other vital ecosystems, the waters that these animals live in become at risk. Trees contribute greatly to riparian buffers, which help control water quality. As deforestation continues, erosion may increase and alter the conditions the animals may be living in. Also, climate change is incredibly detrimental to ectotherms such as this, as they're not able to cool themselves down properly and can easily overheat. Logging for palm oil is the largest threat to their environment, as with many other species native to Southeast Asia. Additionally, introduced species that may eat hatchlings and eggs pose a threat. Good news is that there are efforts being put into place by local governments to protect these animals. The bad news is there are not many global efforts to protect them as they have been deemed low priority. On our website, the IUCN report deeming them low priority is linked, as well as two projects aimed at the species conservation. I hope these animals soon gain more attention as their population is declining. Much like their cousins, the true gharial faces many man-made threats. Human development is a bigger threat as dam construction, water pollution, and large-scale fishing efforts are the major causes for destruction of this population. The good news is, there is a Gharial Conservation Alliance, or GCA, that works on saving these wild populations. 
I was unable to find their website, but the Prague Zoo in the Czech Republic does partner with them and provides a portion of their proceeds to the GCA. This, of course, is linked on our website. There is also a rundown on the GCA linked on our website from the International Reptile Conservation Fund. And while I struggle to find efforts for these animals, the good news is their population is on the rise. Now, let's just hope the same happens for the false aerial. This reptile has quickly become one of my favorites, and it breaks my heart that they have so long been neglected. I really hope that organizations that work on conservation projects for other crocodilians can find the funding to expand to include both of these species of gharial. I'm looking at you, Australia Zoo. I also really hope that my future biologists listening out there are now motivated to travel to Indonesia and learn more about these animals. I mean, they are literal dinosaurs. We need to cherish them. Not literal dinosaurs, but they have been around since the time of the dinosaurs and are archaeosaurs as well, so I mean, the same thing. So please, tell your friends about these weird and wonderful creatures and get others excited about their conservation. Word of mouth is truly the best way to start any movement. I look forward to seeing the Gariel Hunter coming soon to Discovery Channel or Animal Planet sometime soon. I mean, come on, Robert Irwin, you gotta make your dad proud. Before y'all come for me, that was a joke. I know Steve would be so proud of both of his children for their amazing conservation work. I have immense respect for the Irwins and everything the Australia Zoo and Wildlife Warriors do for conservation. I'm just picking on them because as an avid viewer of their shows, I have never once heard them discuss either type of gharial. I could be mistaken though, so sorry if I'm wrong. I hope you enjoyed learning about these weird, not so little reptiles with me, and we'll stick around for next week's episode. Feel free to follow at A to Z Animal Pod on Instagram and Twitter for updates about upcoming episodes. And if you made it this far, please feel free to give some feedback, be it over social media or email. All my contact information can be found on the A to Z Animal Podcast.com. What do you think I did well? What topic do you think I glossed over too fast? Do you want longer episodes, shorter episodes? Any feedback is so highly appreciated as I am brand new to hosting a podcast and know there are probably a million things that I could improve on. Thank you so much for listening to the A to Z Animal Podcast. I'm Michaela Barakat and I hope you'll tune in next week as we move on to the letter G for Glaucus McCall, an animal which may just be extinct in the wild. Have a great day and stay safe. So, 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 we're on, well, we're on the topic of, so, 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 when we're on the topic of hatchlings, hatchlings, topic of hatchlings, pickle, I'm trying to record here, so, 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 while we're on, while we're on the topic of hatchlings, You good? No, you're not good. You good? No? So, while we're... While we're... While... Topic... And according to... And according to... And according... And... And... And according... According to tier part... You good? No? Come here?
70. On average, they live... There is evidence. There is evidence. Is evidence. But they may not live... There is evidence. Is evidence. Is evidence. It's bad taste. We don't do it in the There is evidence. Yeah. There is evidence. Not live it. Live as, may not live as, I mentioned a, I'm a little bit. Pickle is driving me insane. She won't let me get a sentence out. Pickle, stop it. Stop it. Get some help. Maybe sounds to help to some evidence. Help to dig out. My mouth. I've not observed. I've not been this. That's extent of, extent of info. So I guess. So I guess. Extent of info. I should find all the sex chrome.